I don't like receiving bad news. Do you? Do you find yourself dreading even the slight possibility of receiving bad news? I mean, maybe you're similar to me. Your heart kind of skips a beat when that certain text message or email or phone call comes in and your mind goes to the worst possible possibility. It, it seems to have a threatening attempt to ruin your day. I'm sure you all can relate. There's that text message that says traffic is backed up. There's ice on the roads. You're going to be late. The announcement over the intercom at the airport that alerts you, your plane has been delayed once again. A phone call that informs you that your child didn't get into the school of their choice. A letter in the mail from your CPA that indicates that you have to pay thousands of dollars back to the IRS this year. Now we all realize as the older we get, whatever we consider bad news, it eventually changes over time. There's a spectrum to it. Things when we're young, we consider bad news are not necessarily the same things as when we're old. So not all undesirable news is terribly bad news, at least when you place it in the grand scheme of things. For example, recently, I was at the fine dining of Cracker Barrel. I overheard a man talking to his mother about how he wanted to eat his favorite dish off the menu. When the waitress showed up, I watched his countenance suddenly fall as he received the bad news, at least to him, that they were out of his desired dish. And to make matters worse, they were no longer serving his backup request either. In a matter of seconds, a grown man sitting there with his aged mother looked more like a child who wasn't allowed to go and play outside. Truth be told, most of what we call bad news probably sounds more like this man at Cracker Barrel on an average week. It categorizes itself more like inconveniences we just have to deal with rather than life or death situations. For instance, did anyone's past week or recent months sound like this? Someone didn't show up to work again. So you had to do two people's jobs again. Your kid's school went back to Zoom classes for yet another week. Your mom made you wear a thick jacket to school when you wanted to wear just a t-shirt. Your dog chewed up the brand new chair that you bought. Your unfriendly neighbor isn't moving away like you thought they were. You had to cancel another get-together with friends again because of COVID. These and many other examples are certainly frustrations and annoying inconveniences that we typically throw into the bucket of bad news. Regardless of how small or big these minor frustrations are or major storms of life are, regardless, no one ever really gets excited for bad news. Bad news is not like the sun coming up on a beautiful summer morning at the beach. No, bad news is like the black sky thunderstorm that ruins any chance of walking on the beach that day. What typically makes it bad is that it brings something into our lives that we don't like, 
that it prevents us from doing something we want to do, maybe even something that could harm us or someone we love. In that sense, bad news feels more like a rude interruption from an enemy while you're trying to dialogue with someone you love. Bad news is like an uninvited thief that breaks into the home of your life, leaving you feeling vulnerable and unsafe. Bad news can touch everything that means something to us, and it can leave us in a state of panic and dread. On this spectrum of bad news, one form of bad news can bring an annoying inconvenience into our life. And then if it lingers for a while, it can become a depressing and nagging disappointment that just simply reminds us we're not in control. And sometimes bad news escalates and it gets worse over time to the potential it demolishes our whole outlook on life. You see, friends, when we receive bad news, especially the type of bad news that can turn our life upside down, the reason why it's ultimately bad is because it's a threat. It's a threat to something that means a lot to us, like a threat to our jobs, a threat to our families, a threat to our friendships, a threat to our church, a threat to our health, for that matter. But it's in these moments, beloved, these life-altering and life-threatening moments where we're actually going to discover where our faith and our hope really are. In other words, when you receive bad news, the worst that the bad news can become is actually going to reveal if your Christian faith has teeth to it. If what we sing about Christ the sure and steady anchor is really the song of our hearts. Friends, when we receive bad news, if you're anything like me, you start scrambling to try to find out how can we turn this for good? What what can we do? Well, what do we do? We, We search for answers. We turn to mentors. We turn to counselors. We turn to government officials. We turn to doctors. We turn to pastors. We turn to coaches. We turn to parents. We turn to friends. Some of us even turn to the evening news for our theology. And if you are, stop it. <laughs> I've been a pastor here long enough that I have the clout to tell you that. The evening news is not always telling you the truth about what God's Word is saying as well. And friends, we do that because we're looking for hope. We're looking for something to turn that bad news into good news. We could even turn to different forms of escapism, too. We turn to entertainment. We turn to drugs. We turn to alcohol. We turn to video games. We turn to food. Sometimes we even retreat into isolation thinking that self-protection from people and retreating from living in the real world, that's going to be the solution to my bad news. We do all those things because we're looking for hope. And beloved, if we slow down and we think about it, 
I think when we receive bad news, I think most of us, if we were honest, we try to live off of human probabilities more than God's promises. Let me say that again. When we receive bad news, we tend to live off of human probabilities. What are the chances? What are the odds this is going to work out for my good over and above God's promises? Friends, sometimes we, we listen to our feelings a whole lot more than we do the facts. As you've probably heard it said, emotions make excellent servants but tyrannical masters. Friends, is that you today? Maybe you've received some bad news just this past week. You're realizing even while you're sitting here at church, you need help. You need encouragement. You need guidance. You need all that we need in the midst of this fallen world that is plagued with bad news. We need strong and steadfast hope. We need a sure and steady anchor for our souls. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 5. You can find our specific section, Mark 5, verses 21 to 43, Using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 490. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. Back in December, we left off in our study in the Gospel of Mark, and last time we were together, Jesus and his disciples got into their little fisherman boat, and they crossed over the Sea of Galilee to the eastern shore. Jesus was approached by a man that really no one could help. No one could subdue him. No one could tame him. Uh, this demonically oppressed and demonized man, we, we read there was a whole legion of demons oppressing him, thousands, maybe even up to five or 6,000 unclean spirits tormenting this man's life. And we realized that no one on the Decapolis could help this guy until one showed up, until one ushered one word. And this man that nobody could help was changed. After this miraculous deliverance, it had the whole area of Gergesa floored. They were terrified of Jesus. They couldn't deny what he did, but they didn't want him around anymore. So Jesus said, well, the demon-possessed man who's been changed, he's going to be the new evangelist. Disciples, let's get back in the boat. So they get back in the boat, and they sail to the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. That's where we pick up this morning in our passage. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet 
and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear. Only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talita kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is God's word. The scene we pick up with this morning is a combination of scenes. 
A combination of scenes that are filled, they are littered with bad news. It begins with a scene that many moms and dads throughout history have had to sadly experience. A father received the bad news that his 12-year-old daughter is dying. Not only is there a father whose daughter is dying, but then we witness another scene shortly afterwards where a woman is seeking urgent help. Her health condition, probably some form of a disease-infecting hemorrhage, has led her to a place of utter hopelessness. When you combine every facet of this woman's suffering, as she is experiencing financial loss, emotional instability, social isolation, spiritual ostracizing, and ongoing physical pain. Mark, the gospel writer, captures for us, like on camera, two people encounter two devastating blows to their life. Bad news has come and interrupted their life. Bad news, like an unwelcome thief, has come to threaten what has meant so much to them, and the pieces of their life are shattered all over the ground. For the father, it appears this bad news came in like a bad phone call you don't want to get. It was rather sudden, it appears. For the woman, it's an extended season of suffering. In fact, it didn't last just one hour, one day, one month, one year. It was a suffering she endured for up to 12 years. Either way, both people are in situations that are utterly hopeless. And they're humanly impossible to overcome. But at the same time, both of them are searching for answers. Both of them are searching for help. Both of them are searching for hope. In the midst of human odds that are woefully against them. Let's look together then at scene one, starting in verse 22. Get verses 22 and 23. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Here we are introduced to a rather respectable and well-known man in the Galilean region. Uh, his name is Jairus. It rhymes with virus. I'm not funny. But in order to pronounce these words correctly, you have to listen to YouTube clips of Jewish people pronouncing them. Back to the sermon. Jairus is a ruler of the synagogue, Mark says, and as you may recall from a previous study in Mark, the synagogue was that weekly gathering place, kind of the same feel that church is for us, but you know, the whole like Christianity thing's missing, but the idea of a body of people for a religious gathering was taking place, and it took place on the Sabbath. 
the day of rest, that special 24-hour day where the Jews would remember their creator and their promise-keeping God under the Mosaic Covenant. And Jairus had a unique role in the oversight of all the activities that went on in the synagogue. Uh, Being the ruler, he was much like a president of a corporation or some type of business. Uh, He was the head of this local worshiping community. Now, he wasn't an official clergy. He wasn't a rabbi. He didn't have to necessarily be a Pharisee to be a ruler. But he was a layman. That was respectable, and he had chief oversight over all that went on in the synagogue. He would actually oversee what scriptures would be read from the prophets and the law, who would read them, who would teach from them, who would offer prayers. Bottom line, in Jairus' eyes and in the religious community's eyes, Jairus was a big deal. In the eyes of the Pharisees, who hated Jesus, he was a big deal. Jairus wasn't a nobody. He was a somebody to his culture. But on this very sad and frightful day, that didn't matter anymore. His title didn't matter anymore. His reputation didn't matter anymore. How popular he was didn't matter anymore. The applause of men didn't matter anymore because the one thing that could bring this proud, popular, and respectful man to his knees was his life found in his daughter, his own sweet girl. The biggest storm of his life was crashing down on his life. And in a matter of minutes, possibly hours, this man came face to face with how brief time is, how temporal human achievements are, and how frail human beings are right in his own eyes. You see, this man had heard about Jesus, most likely because Jesus had once visited his synagogue. Do you remember Mark chapter 1? Probably not. It was back in the late spring. But there's two other places in Mark's gospel that we read about the synagogue, Mark 1 and Mark 3. In Mark 1, Jesus is in Capernaum. He walks in the synagogue, and this is kind of like the welcome and hospitality team. Demons came out of a guy as soon as Jesus shows up into the building. They are floored. Why are you here? Are you here to destroy us before the time? Jesus not only cast out the demon in front of everybody in the synagogue, but he begins to teach with an authority that thundered that synagogue that no other scribe could have ever matched. Then in Mark 3, you've got the scene in the synagogue where there's a man with a withered hand. And Mark kind of describes the account as if he just kind of showed up. But if you read the passage again, he was put there like a pawn. Jesus was being plotted against to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath and become a Sabbath day breaker, blaspheming God by doing work on the Sabbath. Why do I share all that? Well, we're not sure exactly what synagogue Jesus was in in both of those situations. One's Capernaum, the other one we could probably say Capernaum. 
But the fact that they went back to the northwestern part of the Sea of Galilee means Jairus was probably in the synagogue when he saw Jesus do that. Jairus probably just kind of stood back in the crowd, watched all that go down, see everybody dogpile Jesus with accusations and slander, threatening to run him out of town. He was there. He couldn't deny what he saw. He couldn't deny what he heard. But he wasn't going to get too close. He likes this comfortable spot as ruler of the synagogue. But friends, Jairus is not that much different than some of us here today. Some of us like to kind of fade in the crowd. Some of us like to ride the fence with Jesus. Some of us kind of like just kind of go with whatever everybody else is doing with Jesus. Friends, like Jairus, sooner or later, everyone has to make a decision about what you're going to do with Jesus. You're either going to be for him or you're going to be against him. Jesus is either going to be Lord of your life or he's going to be nothing special at all in your life. And when bad news comes, and friends, if it hasn't come yet in your life, it will. You are going to be faced with the same question that we all are. Will you trust Jesus or will you just ignore him? In this scene, Jairus appears to be coming to the end of himself. He's realizing firsthand for the first time that Jesus and Jesus alone is his only hope. No one in the synagogue could heal his precious daughter. No one in his family, no physicians that he knew about could heal his baby girl. In fact, this girl was 12 years old, and according to Luke's gospel, he gives a detail that says it was his only daughter. This sweet little girl was the apple of his eye, and suddenly that apple was being threatened to be removed. So what does Jairus do? Jairus, verse 23 says, implores earnestly. That's just another way of saying he begged him. It's the same word when the demon-possessed man earlier in Mark 5 was begging Jesus. This time it wasn't a demon-possessed man. It was a respectable ruler of a synagogue. This time, Jesus was hearing the cries of a father, a father like many of us, pleading for Jesus to heal his only daughter. His daughter had much more than the common cold. She was at the point of death, verse 23 says. That means she was literally knocking on death's door. In medical language, in the hallway kind of talk, she was sinking fast. This week, I was staring at this verse, and I, I just happened to look up from my study, and there's three pictures of my kids sitting right there next to my window. And I lost it. As I was putting myself in these father's shoes, I just lost it. 
And if you're here today and you've ever lost a child in death, I want you to know that I am so sorry for you. Jesus loves you. He is sympathetic towards you. And he knows there is a hole in your heart that will never be fulfilled fully on this side of heaven. Jesus loves children, and he loves the parents who've lost children. As one pastor friend of mine has stated, small caskets are always the heaviest. Friends, if you look back over the past several years in your life, what bad news have you received? Did you receive bad news just this past week? How did you respond to that bad news? What did you do? Where did you search for hope? Friends, let me ask you this way. When you receive bad news in your life, does it push you away from seeking Jesus? Or does it pull you closer to him? For this father... He ran to the only person who could do the humanly impossible for his little girl. Jairus had known enough truth and enough power about Jesus that it led him to put his daughter's life into his hands. This man who had held his sweet little girl when she was a baby and then walked with her for the first time. In our day, it would be learning how to ride a bike. It would learning to go to school, uh, putting on that new dress. And all the thoughts of the future of maybe giving her hand in marriage one day are starting to crash down on him. And he looks to Jesus and says, I can't do anything for her. But you can. Beloved, the first step of faith is recognizing that our hands are not the same as God's hands. We got to repent of our God complex. Even sweet mamas who protect their children like mama bears, your hands are still not big and strong and mighty like God's hands. Isn't that what we read in Isaiah 41, verse 10, when Israel was tempted to be afraid? Isaiah 41, verse 10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Beloved, when we are most fearful for our own life, And for the lives of those that we love, the safest place we can put our hope is in the hands of God. We just sang, leaning on the what? Everlasting arms. That means arms that are not too short and arms that are not too weak to carry us. Friends, When you look at a mom and dad and they welcome their new child, that child is totally dependent on their mom and dad. And they're in their mom and dad's arms. But guess how the end of life usually ends for us? We're old, we're weak, and we need someone to carry us to our next meal. 
Friends, that's the Christian life. When you're born again, his arms make you alive. And when you're walking with Jesus and you fall down in your sin, his arms pick you up off the ground. And when you're on your deathbed and you're wondering, am I going to make it? Oh, friends, nobody made it to heaven because we were strong enough. Anybody that makes it to heaven is because his arms are strong enough. Now, the next time we sing leaning on the everlasting arms, I get a little sway going. But you're going to remember, his arms are from everlasting. His righteous right hand can hold you up. Friends, that's, that's what the Christian life is all about. He's carrying us. He's leading us. His righteous right hand is holding up both ours. So friends, whether you're a parent and you're struggling out of fear to let go of your kids, maybe they're getting close to that graduation age, or maybe they're getting a new job, or maybe called to the mission field, and they're no longer in your gaze and you're wondering, are my kids going to be okay? If your hope is placed in the arms of God, your kids are in the safest place they can be. Beloved, he's got the whole world in his hands. Jesus upholds the universe. Try that. I mean, Matt, at the gym, do you have anybody bench pressing the universe? No. I mean, now Matt's pretty, he's got a recent PR that's pretty impressive. But ain't nobody can uphold the universe other than Jesus Christ. So, what did Jesus do? He stayed with Jairus, side by side. Jesus walked with this fearful and desperate father like a man would with a best friend through the darkest hour of his life. Members of CCBC, pray that the members of this congregation would show the courage and compassion of Jesus like we see here. Pray that God would cause us to walk towards people in their suffering, not avoid them in their suffering. Pray that we would stick closer and tighter together in our times of need. Pray that our friendships would grow deep so that when that bad news comes, Well, there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Friends, do you have anyone in your life that has walked with you through some dark times? Do you have you had anyone in your life who's been kind of side by side with you? If you have, thank God for them today and tell them, thank you for walking with me through all my darkness. That's God's gift to you. Don't take them for granted. Mark then goes from scene one to scene two, and now the crowds are pressing back in on Jesus. You know, Jesus can go away for a little bit, and then he shows right back up, and ministry picks up busy where it left off. Uh, the Greek words here, just to kind of give you right to the point, is really uh, a first century way of saying there was bumper-to-bumper traffic. There are a mosh pit of people flocking to Jesus, and it's putting Jesus back in human danger again. I mean, you've got people from sickness to satanic oppression 
Financial poverty to life and death situations. From suffering from injustice, facing marital infidelity, to immoral sin, to enslaving addictions, and everything in between. The line was backed up to see Jesus. But in the midst of this busy and chaotic crowd, Mark tells us a woman is slithering through the crowd. She's trying not to be seen. Verse 25 says that it's a woman. She remains nameless in this account. She's a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Unlike Jairus, she's a nobody. No name mentioned. No family mentioned. No prestigious title mentioned. No indication she had children or had a spouse. The only thing Mark reveals to us is that like Jairus, she too is coming to the end of herself. She's on her last rope of hope. Uh, This incessant bleeding uh, may have begun with some type of abnormality uh, with her menstrual cycle but it evolved over time probably into a tumor or some other bodily disease. Uh, What probably was first a minor concern for like a week or two, eventually led to a month or two, eventually 12 years. Every passing year, she accepted this was the new normal. Friends, this woman who has no name was a woman who wasn't well. She's hurting. She's sick. She was a needy woman. Her body wasn't well, and her soul wasn't well either. Friends, this bodily disease that she had was a very rude interruption to plans that she had for her life. It had wrecked her life so badly that it left her financially broke, physically in pain, and excluded from most of the family and friends of the religious community. Back in Leviticus 15, you'll see that there were cleansing laws, first for the lepers in Leviticus 13. And then you go on to Leviticus 15, there's ceremonial laws, cleansing laws for both men and women. If someone was found with some type of bodily discharge for more than the prescribed amount of time, they were to be examined by a priest. And if it exceeded a certain period of time, they were to be separated. Leviticus 15, verse 31 says, from the congregation. This was in, under the Mosaic Covenant, God's way of making a distinction between the holy and the unholy, the clean and the unclean, the godly and the ungodly of the nations. This woman's incessant bleeding had led her to be categorized as a ceremonially unclean woman. So what was the result? Well, similar to the leper, she was not allowed to participate in the activities of the synagogue. In fact, she wasn't allowed to enter into people's houses because she would make their house unclean. She wasn't allowed to have anyone over to her house if she had one, 
because she would have made those guests unclean. Friends, this is something that's hard for us in our modern tongue and our modern eyes to understand. But I want you to think about this a little more clearly to see the depth of her neediness. Look with me in Mark 5, verses 25 and 26. Mark 5, verses 25 and 26. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Keep in mind that number. Who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Well, but this was not bad news like your favorite TV show got taken off the air this season. This was not bad news like you have to pay more money in taxes this year than last year. This is not bad news like your boyfriend or girlfriend broke up with you or you had to work longer hours at work this week. No, friends, this is the type of bad news that some of you right now live in. You know, as your pastor, I have the great joy of shepherding and seeing you grow spiritually, but I also have the great honor and privilege and challenging task as I'm made aware, as many of you are, and as many of our elders are as well, of difficulties you're facing. Health challenges, financial challenges, marital challenges, sin challenges, everything in between. I know you can resonate with this woman right now at some level because of the things we both know you're going through in your life. A feeling of hopelessness. I don't know where else to turn. I've gone to everybody. I've spent all kinds of money. I've gone to this place and that place. And I'm not getting better. Think. Put on those thinking caps this morning, friends. 12 years of being ceremonially unclean. That's 12 years of being isolated from the synagogue corporate worship of the Jews. That's 12 years of being excluded from family and friend events. That's 12 years of being characterized, labeled as unholy, unclean, uncurable, and undesirable. Undesirable for marriage. Unable, most likely, to have children. Twelve years of people avoiding you, staying away from you because of your problems. And think for a moment how relevant this passage is even for us in our 21st century modern medicine age. She had gone to many physicians who sought to give her many solutions, and it left her worse off than when she first began. David Powlison once put this in a very graphic and dismal light. He said this, that's 12 years of faulty diagnoses. That's 12 years of misguided treatments. That's 12 years of negative side effects. That's 12 years of contradictory advice. That's 12 years of huge waste of time and money. 
That's 12 years of false hopes repeatedly dashed. That's 12 years of false fears pointlessly rehearsed. That's 12 years of no plausible explanation forthcoming. That's 12 years of people blaming her for her disease. That's 12 years of seeing family and friends decline in their sympathy for her. He concludes, the woman was sick. Other people made it worse. Friends, I want to ask you again the same question I've asked myself this week. When you receive bad news, do you push away any dependence on Jesus or does it draw you closer to him? You see, this nameless woman in the midst of 12 years of pain and disappointment and coming to the very end of herself and virtually every category that nobody became somebody when she met Jesus. She became a model of saving faith that Jairus needed to see with his own eyes. He was a man with a big title, a big reputation, probably a big personality. And Jesus was doing a whole lot in that crowd that day. He was showing a big shot what humble saving faith looks like from a nobody who became a somebody. Look with me again at verses 27 to 34. Why is this woman a model of saving faith? Why is this woman a model for what it means to come to Christ? to be made well. Look at verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Friends, 12 years of disappointing doctor's visits was miraculously reversed when she met one physician, the great physician. 12 years of being isolated and excluded and be considered as an unclean, undesirable nobody became a clean, loved, Daughter of a somebody in the kingdom of God. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Like Jairus, this woman had heard about Jesus and she pursued Jesus as a result. Like Jairus, she realized that she could put her whole life into his hands. Isn't this exactly 
how God typically draws people to himself? We hear about Jesus and we run to him. Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's why here at CCBC, we put such a heavy emphasis on preaching and teaching the word of God. That's both in our private ministries at home and in Bible studies and in the children's ministry, but also here publicly as a church each Lord's Day. Friends, if faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, then that must be the central purpose for why we do what we do as a church. You see, most dying churches today, somewhere along the way, diminish the centrality of the word of God by putting too much focus on things that don't have eternal significance. I didn't say any focus, I just said too much focus. Somewhere along the way, these dying churches begin building their ministries on a preacher's personality, on their church traditions, on their human felt needs, on using secular metrics, on trying to carnally attract as big a crowd as possible by offering tons of services that they know they'll come to. But friends, if the Bible, the Word of God, the Scriptures, is most important, and hearing the Word is what brings saving faith, well, that's what we must always keep at the center of our church's life. Friends, that's why the pulpit is up and center. That's what made the Reformation such a scandal to the Roman Catholic Church. They had the Mass, the Lord's Supper, at the front and center because they believed by partaking in the Eucharist that gave you saving grace. But when the Reformers looked at the Bible that were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, they put the saving work of the gospel front and center. Friends, there are churches that are more interested in getting a crowd than they are making disciples. And if you diminish the word of God and you begin to remove it from the center, from the elevated focus of the church's ministry, you may be a mile wide, but you will be an inch deep. Pray that CCBC would never diminish the preaching and teaching of God's word. This is the life-giving source. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. If you're visiting with us today and you don't belong to a local church or maybe you're looking to join another one, my pastoral advice to you, it's free. Not even your pastor, just giving you free advice. Join a church that they build their ministry on the Bible. Join a church where they build their ministry on the Bible. Join a church that aspires to be healthy and faithful. Not a church that's just trying to fill a bunch of bodies in a building. As Paul Washer has said, don't look for the closest church to your house. Find the church closest to the Bible. If you want to learn more about our church, as Brother Tom mentioned, we have membership classes in the next couple of weeks. You're welcome to attend those. Back to Mark 5. Again, this woman's faith, where did it begin? She heard the reports about Jesus. This woman didn't have a dead faith. She didn't have a nominal faith 
She didn't have her faith stay on some shelf somewhere from a pastime prayer she ushered in Awanas as a kid or walking down some aisle in a Baptist church once upon a time. No, her faith in Jesus was proved genuine by her actions. You know that, right? Her actions. Her faith was demonstrated by her obedience to go to Jesus. She heard about Jesus. She pursued Jesus. She fell down before Jesus. She told the whole truth to Jesus. And Jesus made that nobody a daughter in the kingdom of God. This unclean woman, this undesirable woman in her shame, in her filth, in her pain, in her loneliness, in her poverty, in her fear, in her insecurity, in her regrets, in her disappointments, she cared nothing about what people thought anymore. She held nothing back. She cared very little about what the crowds would say to her. And let me bring out something that I think we need to be reminded of every once in a while. She needed no one to manipulate her to go to Jesus. She needed no one to coerce her. She needed no one to guilt her to do it. Friends, if you can trick somebody into becoming a Christian, then somewhere along the way, someone else is going to outsmart them and trick them to not follow Jesus anymore. We can't trick anybody into becoming a Christian. God and God alone makes us one of his own. Friends, that is so important for us as a church, how we evangelize children, how we evangelize and counsel and shepherd those who are seeking answers. Do we pray? Yes. Do we teach? Yes. Do we plead for people to repent and believe? Absolutely. But John 6.44 says that God draws us to him. Hebrews 12.2 says Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. The triune God doesn't need us to add our personality to their saving work. Friends, we pray, we teach, we watch, and we wait. And God will save those who he calls to himself. On that crowd that day, that nameless woman looked her Savior in the eyes and realized that her name was written on his hands. Her name was never found in any kind of record books or synagogue annals. But her name was written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the earth. Friends, this is such a beautiful picture of salvation. To my non-Christian friend, do you find yourself somewhere in the story of Jairus or this woman? Well, then you need to recognize that the first step to becoming a Christian is recognizing you can't make yourself clean before God. You come to him dirty, filthy, doubts, fears, but you leave it all. You hold nothing back. You bring it all to him. That's what we see in Mark chapter 5. But you know the uncleanness that we have in our life? It's not because of some hemorrhage. It's not because of 
maybe I did a few bad things that my mom and dad didn't like me to do when I was a kid. Jesus said in Mark 7 that our uncleanness starts right here in our hearts. Mark 7, 20 to 23, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Friends, you cannot make yourself clean in God's eyes. Even if you try to do it, you're just going to make yourself more dirty in the process. Good works won't do it. Church attendance won't do it. Memorizing some Bible verses won't do it. Come to Jesus, the pure and undefiled Lamb of God, who hung on a cross for unclean, filthy, ostracized, hell-deserving sinners like you and me. And he died. And three days later, God raised him from the dead. Friends, coming to Jesus is the only way you can be made clean before God. It's Christ's merits for us. His pure and clean devotion to our Heavenly Father is what makes us acceptable in His sight. Turn from your sins. And the Bible tells us that by His wounds, by His stripes, we are healed. Friends, on that day, Jesus did more than just some isolated acts of healing. He was a divine multitasker, upholding the universe by the word of his power. But in these moments, he was drawing people to himself, healing people. A lot of people were watching that day. The disciples were watching. The woman was healed. The crowd was watching. But guess who else was watching? Jairus. Did you forget he was in the story? What happened to Jairus' daughter? Jairus has been sitting there, standing there, in the midst of this mosh pit, watching this woman slither her way through the crowd and get healed. He's still got to face the fact that his little girl is knocking on death's door. Look with me at verses 35 to 43. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was, taking her by the hand. He said to her, Talita kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. 
And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This last scene is really picking up from scene one. And we're faced with two questions in this passage. Two questions. Number one, why do we fear death? Why do we fear death? Or you could ask it this way. Why is it when we hear that someone has died, we receive it as bad news? Question number two. What is Jesus' response to our fears of death? Notice I didn't just say one. Fears, plural. What is Jesus' response to our fears of death? Question number one. Why do we fear death? I am literally putting my heart on the table and telling you I have all these fears. Yes, your pastor has these. And I've heard some of you and people I've counseled and people I've been in funeral homes with have said the same things. So we're kind of all in this together. Reasons that we fear death. It's the end of life. All the joys and pleasures that come with this life are over. We're finite creatures. We're limited beings. We crave sight. We want our faith to be made sight. Uh, Last time I checked, we don't know anyone personally that's died, gone on to be with the Lord, and come back and told us what heaven was like. Those books at Barnes and Nobles that claim such nonsense, if they're in your house, I got a lighter, you can burn them. They're garbage. They're not true. But your Bible's true. Whatever God's word says about what heaven's going to be like, you can bank your life on that. But to the wind with everybody's testimonies that make a bunch of money, a bunch of hucksters. But we want to see it, right? We've never, never been there. Another fear is the fear of leaving loved ones behind. Are they going to be okay without me? Then there's the fear of losing someone you can never get back, at least not on this side of heaven. No more phone calls, no more text messages, no more hugs, no more goodbyes. Not at least in this life. And for some of us, it's the fear of the process of dying that we dread. The pain of dying or watching someone die right in front of you is terrifying. Which one of those do you most resonate with this morning? Whichever one it is, Jesus already knows. He knew Jairus' fears and he walked with him. Which leads to question number two. What is Jesus' response to our fears of death? Here in this scene, Jairus gets the tragic news that his daughter didn't make it. 
Apparently, Jesus' busy schedule got so busy that Jesus somehow forgot. They were heading to his house where the grieving mother and the sick daughter were, but Jesus got too busy. He had the crowds. He had this woman. He got sidetracked from the original mission. Jesus gave this man some hope, but that hope was interrupted by another person's problems. Time had run out. Plans that Jesus had to do Jairus good, well, they came up short. Or did they? Well, Jairus' heart must have sunk to the floor when he got word that his sweet daughter had died. Verse 35, could you just imagine? I've been waiting all day and get that news. People are weeping and wailing loudly, verse 38. After Jesus makes the claim that the girl is just sleeping, the house of mourning turns into the house of mockery. They're scorning Jesus. How dare you? How disrespectful of you? How in this moment of grieving could you say this little girl of this dad that you've been hanging out with, that she's sleeping? How insensitive are you? Who do you think you are? That's what the word means, laugh, scorning, mocking. Something Jesus was very familiar with. But amidst the fears, amidst the mourning, and amidst the mockery, did you notice Jesus is 100% confident in this scene? What we view as interruptions to a busy schedule, Jesus must have dropped the ball. Jesus must not have heard my prayer. Jesus must have walked with me and then kind of said, fend for yourself. Good luck finding the fears of death on your own. God didn't show up like I thought he was. Friends, that's exactly when Jesus often shows up. When we come to the end of ourself, when we have to face fears that we've suppressed all our life, we've buried in some journal or diary up in an attic somewhere, Jesus doesn't leave us off the hook. He says, if you're going to follow me, I'm going to walk with you, but you're going to face them, and I'm going to be with you in these fears. Jesus is the best counselor. He's the best friend. He's the most courageous pastor you could ever follow. Compared to Jesus, I'm a coward. I'm a lousy counselor. I get busy, sidetracked. I can't even put the towels up. You know, I can't remember what I said 20 minutes ago. Jesus, spinning the world, saving people, healing people, dealing with nonsense, seeing my church built up, confident. The kingdom of God, doing just fine. Corey Tim Boone once said, there is no panic in heaven. God has no problems, only plans. Like the woman who was healed, Jesus chose to heal this girl. When Jesus touched this little girl's hand, she got up like a Sunday afternoon nap, like she was sleeping, and she was awoken again. Friends, what was Jesus' response to Jairus' fear of death? Look at verse 36. Look at verse 36 with me. 
Notice what he says in Mark 5, verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. The verb tense there literally says this, Stop being afraid. Keep believing in me. Stop being afraid. Keep believing in me. In other words, stop letting your feelings be your master. Submit your feelings to me. I am a good master. You see, the point of Jesus' words here is not that God will heal every sick person we love. Should we pray for those who are sick? Absolutely. James 5. Should we take people to the doctor that God in his common grace can provide real comfort and a relief in their physical suffering? Absolutely. Jesus never says, don't go to the doctor. He never scolds her for going to physicians. The point of this passage is that when we are at the end of our rope, when the worst news, whether that's our health, our family, or our own unclean sin, there is always good news in Jesus. The good news is that Christ, in Christ, God is always for us. God is never against us. And God will always be with us. So, as I was hanging out with Joanne this week, I actually gave her a preview of this sermon in her living room. So I said, if you come, you might be a little bored because you're going to get the cliff notes. But I told Joanne, I said, Joanne, when you go to the doctor for the pain that's not going away and you're having to go to like three, four, five doctors and should I go this way or that way, the next time you walk through those doors of the doctor, preach this to your heart. The Lord says, I am with you. My righteous right hand will uphold you and whatever you ordain for me will be right. Friends, everyone in here, when you go to the doctor, that should be our ultimate hope. Whatever you ordain, medicine that helps or medicine that does not heal, you are with me. And when we get the news that someone is sick, we pray, we fall down at the feet of Jesus, we tell the truth to Jesus, and we trust he's walking with us to and through our fears. Jesus walked with Jairus side by side and he raised the dead right before his eyes. You see, in the resurrection, our bodies will be made new and whole. We'll be 100% healed of our physical infirmities. And like that little girl, and like our Lord Jesus Christ, we will rise. We will die and we will rise like a little girl awakening from her sleep. You see, in Christ, right now and forever, it is well with your soul. Let's pray. Father, there are no panics in heaven. There are only plans. Lord, we all have fears. Fears of a loved one getting sick. 
fears of a loved one moving away and wondering if they're going to be okay. Fears of wondering if you'll accept us in our dirty uncleanness. Lord, I pray that you would use what we've learned today to open our eyes to the compassion and courage of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that even as we conclude this time together, that we would sing from the depths of our hearts the wonderful promise that it is well with our souls. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.